I'm Emirat, and the Magic 8-Ball just said, Reply Hazy. Try again. And I'm Chantel. I never met a velvet painting that I didn't want to caress. <laughs> Alright, so would you like to start us off? Sure. So, welcome everyone to another episode of Drunk Art History, bitches. We're here, your favorite femme fabulous, fierce art historians hanging out in the darkest corner of the dingiest bar, spilling all of the art history chisme from the past until now, because God knows there's enough dirt for us to discuss for years. Amazing. Oh, everyone, welcome to get another episode of Art What the fuck is the name of our podcast? Welcome. Just fucking three bitches. Thank you for that reminder. Today, we're going to be discussing butts through the ages. Chantelle and I are gonna take you on a wild journey from the most ancient of pieces to right here in the present day. And we're gonna have a lot of shit to talk about. So buckle up, bitches. Clink. Clink. All right, I am so 100% ready for this conversation. I want to give a little bit of a backstory about why I'm so excited for this particular episode, Butts Through the Ages. Okay, Amaret doesn't watch a lot of movies, but Amaret, have you watched the movie Love Actually? Why are you revealing my weakest character trait? <laughs> I haven't, actually. Okay, Love so it. for those of you who have seen Love Actually, it's great. And for those of you who haven't, like, stop being a hater. There's this scene in an art gallery where there's a group of teenage girls that are looking at this, like, postmodern photography, and it's a lineup of older men and their bare asses. And they're giggling at it, and the person in charge of the gallery is like, it's not funny, it's art. And I'm like, it's both, bitch! Like, what are you talking about? Art can be funny. I will never forget the time I took my friend through LACMA and he just kept saying, butts, tits, butts, tits. And the docent <laughs> wanted to kill us, but we had a great time. So here we are to talk about butts through the ages in all their weird glory and manifestations. Start us off, we're going to take it way, way back to the Venus of Willendorf. And let me just tell you, this lady has been through a lot. She was oh my God. a sculpture beautifully created, in my opinion, to represent fertility and all that is good about being a woman and all that is good about Mother Earth. And I think she kills it and absolutely represents those things beautifully. What you need to know about the Venus of Willendorf is that she's totally stacked. And I mean, like, got them curves everywhere. And so she couldn't not be included in an episode about butts. This is so true. She is just like born stacked, ready to rock it, tits for days, 
holy crap. And to have those curvatures represent femininity, to represent fertility. I mean, I, I, I'm really excited to discuss that in terms of the last image that we're going to discuss and how, how butts have been utilized over the ages to, like you just said, it's funny, but it's also a statement and it's also art. It really is. I mean, and there's obvious stylization, which is the thing that I feel like is a good indicator of art. I feel like so many people have come up to me since learning that I studied art history to say, what makes something art? And I always say intention. And so you can definitely see that here. It's stylized. I There are not many women who look like this. If they did, they'd fall over while standing because like the proportions of her ankles to her breasts and stomach and ass, like it's gonna fall over, man. It's like seeing those women walking down Rodeo Drive in their stilettos, like they're gonna fall. It so happens and I feel sorry for them every time. But anyway, that's a different kind of art. But the Venus, she dates back to about 25,000 years ago. And the other thing that I love about it is the fact that I think when we go back in history, in American culture especially, we tend to think more puritanical. And it's like, nah, bitches, like this is, this is their god of fertility. Like, look at... They are accentuating her curves and they know what they do. Just because you're going back doesn't mean we're regressing in terms of sexuality. Like it's been there, people have done that. Exactly. And I just, I really love it. And I love that in a lot of cases, these particular type of fertility goddesses and statues, I mean, they date back from as early as 40,000 BCE, like prehistoric times. It was still something to be immortalized, the female body. Absolutely. And at that point, it wasn't even like sexuality wasn't even intellectualized to the point where it had to be one way or another. Like there were no authority figures when it came to sexuality, when it came to fertility, it just simply was. And I just want to say that I just got off my period. And I want to say that I felt like Venus of Villendorf the entire time. I felt so bloated. I felt so large and in charge. It was kind of cool. Large and in charge is definitely the way to think about it, my beautiful, beautiful friend. Because, okay, I hate this term so much, but it feels slightly relevant to the topic of the Venus of Villendorf dwarf and fertility and menses like ch the term childbearing hips like yep. you know yep. there's just there's something about this being so old and yet in this moment of society and western society in particular just focusing and worshiping full-bodied women that feels very very modern in a way that I don't think anyone would have expected as we like drowsily learned about this in prehistoric art history classes. Exactly, where like this was not, you know, this image of femininity and this image of the body is not kind of what we think of when we think of, you know, women depicted in art or vagina owners depicted in art. It is just, I immediately think of 
Mona Lisa. I think of all of these classical pieces that are supposed to be the poster child of what beauty and what femininity represents. And that's just not the case. You know, especially, I'm, I'm just really excited for us to explore. I, I can see future topics of like oh. sexuality depicted in art. I mean, I have an entire book on sexuality during the modern Renaissance and how like all of these images, all of these religious iconographies are, are inherently very sexual. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, there's, that's a whole other episode. Sex and religious iconography. Speaking of, we're actually going to talk about one of those pieces, but I want to say one last thing about the Venus of Willendorf. And that's also the fact that, you know, when we're talking about traditional thoughts on male or on female beauty, it's very much, especially in terms of art history and art historical theory, focused on European standards. White, you know, the Madonna, just it's so wrapped up in whiteness. And what I really love about the Venus of Willendorf is that you can see her stylized hair and it is very much not the hair of a white European woman. And yet, interestingly enough, it's, it's been analyzed in response to and in comparison to Western European art when it was found. And it's like, no, let's think about context here for a second and where this piece actually came from, where all of humanity actually came from. And the fact that white isn't right. And I'm not afraid to say it. Yes, I have it, but I don't care. Say it on my soberest days. Venus of Willendorf, hot ass piece. Damn, that is literally what's up. Can I just say exactly, like I wanna just, emphasize what you just said it's like the beginning of the universe it makes me think of the birth of the universe the origin of the universe which is nick cave's rendition on my phone screensaver i love it i saw that painting projected so large in one of my community college classes and my art history professor just walked right through and was illustrating everything and he stood right where the vagina was it's like there we go there we go i love that so much i will never forget i'm gonna go on the opposite side of the cisgendered spectrum here please do um, and talk about an art history professor that i had at ucla who started his African-American art class with a very, very large projection of a piece by Robert Mablethorpe, which was a full frontal male nude and the shocked gasps in that large lecture hall is something <laughs> I never forget. And I love, it. love him dearly for starting the class off like that. That is brilliant. Also, Robert Maplethorpe is just, oh, my heart. I have uh, a book. I have pictures by Robert Maplethorpe, and that book is just so much. It's so great. I think we definitely are going to need to have a Robert and Patty episode. 
like. I would love that so much. Fans, what do you think? Would you love that? I hear the echoes and cries of yes, yes, of course. Exactly. Well, so I want to highlight a point that you had said when you were describing the Venus of Villendorf and describing how early art was supposed to be puritanical. Like, that's the idea. Very, very, um, very proper, very well to do. And I'm going to take us to the Garden of Earthly Delight by none other than Hieronymus Bosch. Oh. Oh, yeah. But again, buckle up, bitches. We are here. So with... (laughs) It is hard not to be overwhelmed by the amount of butts in this image, as well... I mean, in all three panels, as well as the other genitalia that comes with Earthly Delights. And so... You know, when we see this Northern Renaissance painting or, you know, Netherlandish painting, this was done in approximately between 19 or 1940, yes, 1490 and 1510. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're quite a number of years ahead of the Venus of Billendorf, but I will say that the, the bodies are not as stacked, but the butts are abundant. And so with the discussion of religious art and its puritanical associations, I love this piece because of its, it's sort of, I don't know, I feel that it's beyond its time when it comes to, I guess I'd say religious propaganda. In the left panel, we have what is appeared as Adam and Eve and, you know, the first creatures. And these are very small, fragile uh, humans depicted as well as in the center of the left panel. We have a very phallic looking fountain, um, which I just think, I don't know, Chantel, tell me if I'm wrong, but this feels like super early surrealism. What are your thoughts? 1000%. And we're planning on doing another episode about this later, but the animals look real weird, y'all. And (laughs) what the fuck is even happening there? The phallic fountain that Amaret mentioned is flesh colored. Oh, yes. Let me point that out. Quite erect, if I will say. So erect. And then there's a random elephant. And it then, does look like an elephant. I will give Bosch this. It actually does look like an elephant. That's true. Good shit, Bosch. And then, like, some structures that look like they're out of fucking Narnia. Like, it's just, it's so out there that I I always question when I see Hieronymus Bosch's work, like, what were you smoking? And oh. where did you get it? Because my dude... Share the wealth, my dude. You are unlike anything else coming out of this era of art history, period. Honestly, when I first learned about Hieronymus Bosch, I was like, where the fuck did this fool come from? Where are his inspirations? It is unreal. I actually, so that's kind of on my Christmas list this year, is I would love to get an art book of Hieronymus Bosch. Fans, I'm not dropping hints, but... Anyway, but I I love it. (laughs) I I can afford to buy my own art book. I'm I'm not pandering. I'm just pandering only slightly. And then here we are in the center panel. 
this garden of earthly delights after the cursed Eve ate the apple and condemned us to earth. Well, shit. Looks like a grand old time, in my opinion. It really does. It really, really does. I, okay, so the thing that always freaks me out, and I would have to do a deep dive into art historical research, which I am 100% willing to do, but I always get freaked out by how much the contortions of the human bodies here as they are exploring their sexuality look like something out of like the Karma Sutra and earlier Indian depictions or um, East Asian depictions of people coupling that I'm like, how did you see this? How did this come about? What's that connection? And there are very few artists where you're like, how did you know about this? Where I'm like, there's there's really gotta be like a third artistic eye that just exists in some people where you could send magical artistic brainwaves across continents. <laughs> yeah, this is totally like when they're having sex. Absolutely. And it's and it's so fascinating to me that there are styles that are so similar to one another yet geographically so distant. And that's where the conversation of like trade and artistic you know intelligence and integrity come into play which like god i could go on for ages about you know inherently a unique style but i don't think that that ever exists you know i think that artists are just so informed by their surroundings so i'd be i mean i haven't dived too deep into bosch but i'd be so curious as to you know what art he was looking at what music he was listening to what circles was he around you know who was he spending his time with to be able to you know create something that's so it's like that idea of you know when you're learning about art history and you're in your intro to art history class you learn about it's it's a survey class and it does no justice but it's it's so interesting to see how different cultures depict inherently the same story and how that story is interpreted, how it's co-opted, how it's colonized, but then also, you know, seeing the ways in which that story is morphed over time. It's it's just so fascinating, and especially with this center panel of the Garden of Earthly Delights. I mean, I would love to swim down the lake in a bubble on top of a fish. I don't know about you, but it's really hot right now, and I think I could go for a swim. Seriously. And, well, okay, and the other thing is, like, we went from the Venus of Willendorf, who is very obviously gendered and female, but when you're looking at Hieronymus Bosch, like, there are butts and body parts, but they're pretty androgynous. Like, I agree. Not much there to tell you, like, this is a man, this is a woman. And I find that so fascinating because I feel like most other art from the same time was very gendered and very much was all about establishing like, yeah, that dude's definitely got a penis or like- There it is right there. Yeah, exactly. And that's just not the case here, but it's, it's so weird to me that this wasn't specifically made to be deeply erotic and yet it is so incredibly erotic. Okay, the center panel is basically a giant orgy and then (laughs) and and you know moving on to the right panel i mean we kind of have some even more like radical religious propaganda going on where you have 
you have this sort of dog figure holding a, a what looks like possibly a woman. So it's the dog wearing a habit, holding what looks like a woman, and then there's another person behind them. And then obviously, you know, this is even more so kind of an early surrealist pers perspective of giant ears and what look like, you know, biological body parts um, just enlarged in this, in this panel. And I don't know, man, it's like you said, it's just really interesting to see all of these very androgynous bodies where they're not, the curvatures are not as emphasized. And I, I might want to use that opportunity to segue to the next art piece. I think you should. I'm ready to, I'm ready to go for it. I think, I, I think everybody's going to be ready for it. And I just, I just want to say that David by Michelangelo has an absolute dump truck ass. You heard it here, folks. That ass. Oh, it's been so lovingly chiseled out of the marble, free for all to admire. And I have to be honest, okay, I think this is an interesting time to talk about what we find attractive in other humans. Because honestly, it was really hard to find a picture of the David from the back because everyone is so focused on the abs and the pants and those curls and those biceps. Like he is a full on snack. And then you see the ass and it's just like, <gasps> there it is. The literal whole kit and caboodle. Caboodle for real. I'm going to date this back to one of my classes at UCLA, which was modernist sculpture. And that one was one of my favorites. We spent so much time in the UCLA sculpture garden. And for folks that are in LA or perhaps making their way to LA safely, we are in a pandemic at this point in time. Um, the sculpture garden at UCLA is open, fresh air. It's beautiful if you have the opportunity to go. I am not sponsored by them in any way, shape, or form, but that shit is fucking beautiful. Anyway, I digress. During that class, I was really kind of rocked to the core when we approached a sculpture in the sculpture garden and my professor asked, where's the beginning? Where's the front of this sculpture? And I realized, oh shit, there is no front. It's a sculpture in the round. This is not a relief. What is the right way to look at this sculpture? And I think it was um, David Smith's QB. I think that was the, that was the, it's a funny story about that one. We'll get to it later. But that was the sculpture where we were like, oh shit, where does it begin? Does it have an ending? It doesn't seem so. So it, it, that's kind of like, the really exciting part that I, I latched onto when it came to sculptural artworks. And when talking about Michelangelo's David, you can absolutely start with this ass. There's a lot to go around. I'm staring at it right now, hold on, let me just. So just, it just blows my mind that Michelangelo during this time, so this is the Italian Renaissance for, for folks to be able to reference. And during this time, Michelangelo was 
basically Pope Julius the fourth, the fifth, whatever Pope at that time, he was basically his bitch. He was like, yo, St. Peter's Basilica, I need you to build that shit. Sistine Chapel, paint that shit. Spend time on your back. I don't give a shit. Get your assistants to paint it. Oh, by the way, David, come on. Get your, get your shit together. Chop, chop. Like, he was busting his ass. Props to him. And props to whoever his assistants were. And props to whoever, you know, ga gathered the marble, sourced all of the resources. Like, that shit is not easy. But I just want to say that when, when you approach a sculpture, our listeners, our fair, beautiful listeners, keep this in mind. You know, this is a sculpture in the round. It doesn't have to have a beginning or an end. You don't have to start with the abs or the peen or the curls. You, my dear, can start with the butt, which as a visual descriptor, I can say right now, I just, I want to touch it. They look pillowy soft. I want to touch the butt. That blows my mind how there is so much of him that seems rock hard. <laughs> and then you get to his ass and you're like, that looks like the softest thing in the world. I want to grab it. I want to squeeze. Just a pinch, but obviously with his consent. Consent, green flags all around. All around. You know what I love about his ass? Tell me. Is that it's so big, talking about scale, that like it's bigger than both of our heads combined. It's like so, each of our heads are a cheek. It's fucking it, wild. If you've if you've never seen a picture of the David being cleaned, it's hilarious. Why that ass? Because when you're studying it in an art history class and you're seeing it projected, you can't imagine the scale. Like, it just does not work. This thing is massive. And the other thing that I love about it is that it's 100% together. You know, it, with these sculptures, especially those that are more delicate and really lifelike, we know that there are so often limbs missing, heads missing, so perfect. Yeah. I honestly think it's the power of his beauty that just kept him together even until now. I agree. I do agree. Those piercing eyes, those lovely curls, that tight ass. Wow. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> so single right now, guys. Um, Girl, it is hard out here, okay? And I just, yes, if this is my living will, if this is the only will and testament I ever have to make, if I am ever in a situation where like I'm in a coma, it's like, it's, I'm not going to wake up. Whatever happens, if I could be crushed to death by David's ass, I would, like, that would be a way to go that I'd be okay with. I would 100% agree. Can we make sure that that happens? I think, yeah. I think we absolutely should. We can put a word into, you know, the Vatican and be like, yo, what's up? Our, our ashes could create a nice patina the next time he's being washed. I love it. For our fans, we're dancing. We can't wait to actually dance with you much one day. That's on butts. That's on butts. Well, so perhaps very appropriate for the time. Um, the next butt that I chose is not an obvious butt, but it is a butt nevertheless that should be acknowledged. Elbrecht Dürer is part of the German Renaissance, and he is an artist that I 
absolutely adore. In this particular segment of Butts Through the Ages, I chose Melancholia 1. And for those of you who are familiar or perhaps looking at this image right now, you're like, Tamo, I don't really see any butts. I see like a skinny dog. I see a little baby angel. I see a larger angel. I see a lot of really amazing, intricate print work, but I don't see an ass. And I want to challenge you to look further south, my friends. This angel right here in the midst of contemplating melancholy, that tukus, that touche is quite the cushion. It's so very true. And I have to wonder, and I already love this conversation, how much of it is the clothing that they are depicted wearing. I will try to find it, but I remember watching a video once of historically accurate costumes being removed from a person. Painful. And in this time, so many goddamn layers. It's like, what was up with those layers? Free yourselves. Where does a human begin? And so when I see pieces like this, I really love that we did actually choose a butt that's clothed. It's not the case for the next piece, but whatever. Oh, um, yeah. This next piece, I don't know about that. But I will say thank you for bringing up the layers of clothes because I really, I don't know, I think that that really adds to the imagination that can be taken from this piece, you know, imagining what this butt, this angelic butt that is quite sad. And can I just say, listeners, you are listening to two angels who have very good asses, who are also very sad. This is a time of <laughs> true melancholy. There is an hourglass depicted right above the angel, as well as a bell and a balance of scales that you know, we all know are representatives of time, of justice, of impending events. And hell, I don't know about you, Chantel, but I am often in that pose of just my hand on my chin, just please. That's my grumpy noise. So very much. And I am also really looking forward to the scales of justice tipping in a more just manner very very soon hopefully god help us goddess help us butts help us honestly it is it is it is getting really fucking hard out here for our listeners who don't know who are perhaps tuning in from other time zones we are two fabulous art historians coming at you live from los angeles california and so <laughs> using that as a uh, as a source of melancholy there is there is quite a lot to be mad about as Solange says I feel a little bit weird talking about a cherub's butt but I'm sure this little baby angel this little baby cherub has a has a cute little tush you know I was going to say it's really weird to me that the cherub is clothed because yeah. so they are not and I'm really wondering I mean Durer he like was coming from a hardcore religious country and so I have to imagine that that's at least a little bit of the reason why 
the butts, they are a covered, and the other limbs, they are a covered. But I really, I get your point of the fact that all of the different ways that we capture the image of a body now, it's sometimes sexier to leave it to the imagination. When you're looking at this angel, and we'll be posting pictures of this as well on our Instagram, you can barely see anything of her body. But the thing that I love is that underneath her skirt, you can see a like a little peak of foot. Mm -hmm. And it's like, doesn't it make you want to see what else is there? To lift up the curtain of her skirt and see what's going on. Right, and even just the most intricate of suggestions of where her knees are, um, the folds of her dress, as well as just the slight pattern that you can see around the, the waist. It's just so cool that, I don't know, I feel that that is, that lends itself to more, you know, contemporary movements of art, but leaving the suggestion, not really spelling it out for the viewer. That's something that I really admire especially when talking about butts. It can be the, uh, <laughs> the suggestion of butts. The suggestion of butts. And I think that it's also adding a sense of sumptuousness in other ways. Not only in his prints, but in his paintings, specifically if you look at other work by Durer, there's this hyper-focus on texture and really portraying furs and silks and all of these different textures that just sort of make you want to run your hands through the painting. That's incredibly sexual and very sumptuous, even without giving away all the goods like David does. Well, speaking of, of giving away all the goods, Chantel, this next piece, damn, those goodies. Those goodies indeed. So <laughs> we're talking about Jean-Auguste Dominique Henri's La Grande Obelisque, uh, which was painted in 1814. And I had to talk about this butt because I hate Orientalism so much. And every time I see this piece, I want to punch someone. And what I mean by <laughs> it is if you were to Google the word Orientalism, you will see so many hyper stereotypical images of life in the Middle East as presented by the people colonizing it. And it's so much filled with opium dens and harems and it's just such ridiculous bullshit. And for the artists that really traveled to the Middle East and actually went in search of inspiration right there in front of them, they, to their credit, do actually paint people of color, which is something. But here you have Angre, who is fascinated by the textures and the silks and the trappings of Orientalism, but so, so unwilling to acknowledge that a brown person can be hypersexual and feminine to the point where he has painted something that very obviously pulls from the idea of a harem and made this woman lily white. And it's so upsetting to me. 
I would be very concerned about her going anywhere near the sun without at least SPF 50. To the credit of the people who were seeing this painting for the first time, they definitely made fun of Angra to say like, my dude, no one looks like that. Like you're painting an ideal that's not exist. And I have always found that so fascinating when it comes to the liberties that artists take in creating their ideal, an ideal painting of the world they want to live in, an ideal sexual partner, all of these different ideals and how they end up coming to life. And I think in this moment in particular, we have one artist who's just gone way overboard and you have to wonder, does beauty always come at the expense of realism? Like if you look at this woman, she has the longest back in the world. I don't know about you, my back is not that long. And also proportionately, her ass should be where her, where her spine ends. You see exactly. that? Exactly. Yes. Where the fuck, how the, is she part lizard? What's happening here? I think that's a fair question that the artist makes because of how elongated her spine is. And it's honestly laughable. And I get why he was ridiculed. But I also think that it's so interesting that this is an image that you see time and time again as a student of art history when it comes to taking a look at Orientalism and at the art of the 19th century. Angre is always brought up and this painting is always brought up, even though any modern viewer would look at it and say, what the fuck? <laughs> exactly, what the fuck? And I just, I wanna go back to what you had said where artists depict their ideal. I mean, this is absolutely a prime example of depicting one artist's ideal in such a problematic way where it reminds me of, I just recently rewatched the TED talk, The Danger of a Single Story by um, Chimimanda Ngozi and how growing up, all the stories she wrote about were blonde haired, blue eyed people that talked about the weather. And it's like, wait, hang on, that's not the case. And how with Americans, with, with folks in the United States, I wanna, I wanna stray away from saying Americans because there's a North America, there's a South America. From the folks in the United States, I think that there is such a skewed view of a single story of folks from the Middle East, from Asia, from Southeast Asia, from all different lands, um, that this is just such a depiction of, I'm gonna take what I like and I'm gonna insert the colonizer, exactly like you said. I'm gonna insert white supremacy. I'm gonna insert the ideal at the expense of this woman's physical body to depict an ideal. Men, artists, artists that are men, if you're listening, stop fucking painting women's bodies un unrealistically. Just, just stop, just stop. Unless you're gonna go like full surreal, all sorts of Venus of Villain, like, like do what you want, but think about what you're painting.
anyway, that was my, that was my tangent. I love it. There has always been a lot of talk of the fact that she is, has like a beckoning look in her eye that isn't really there. If you ask most women, what is her expression telling you? Most women will say she looks bored or at least wary. My, my first thought, so one of the exercises that we like to do with our students whenever we visit a museum is create a monologue for the different characters within a painting or within a painting. Love that. Um, and it's kind of a facet of social emotional learning where you can also create dialogues for different objects of the piece. So in this instance, perhaps her, um, the little uh, pipe by her feet could have a monologue. The curtains could have a monologue. The sheets could have a monologue. Her jewel in her hair could have a monologue. Um, but if I were if I were her, I'd say, oh, you're here? Yes. That was my first impression. And I think that that's absolutely right. But when you ask most men, what does her face say? It says, come hither. And what I've always found so telling is that's not what her face is saying. That's what her body is saying. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference. Mm -hmm. And that you can't distinguish makes me weep for your gender. Sucks to suck, doesn't it? Truly. <laughs> I agree. Now, speaking of unrealistic asses. Oh, take us home, Chantel. Take us home. I am so ready to talk about our modern ass in so many senses of the word, which is going to be the paper magazine cover from winter 2014 of Kim Kardashian, her Break the Internet cover. I remember having the most visceral reaction to this image of, are you fucking kidding me? Shit, same. Kim Kardashian is somebody that challenges and checks my feminism. Yes. She does. I mean, a lot of women do. And I think that that's, that's part of the process. That's part of the process of intersectional feminism. 100%. It's photos like these where I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to sit with this. I got to sit with this. I got to talk with people about this. Absolutely. And so for those of you who had not seen it, and until you have a moment to potentially pull over or pull up a search engine, the image is basically a photograph of Kim in a very plain brown covered studio. And she's wearing a sequined evening gown with ridiculous pearls on her neck. And she's bent in a contorted way in order to hold a champagne flute on her ass and in her hands is a bottle of champagne that is gravity defyingly spraying above her person and into the champagne flute on her ass. As she laughs, 
at her own folly. That was such a polite description. Thank you. You're welcome. Tried real hard. Now, there are a lot of things about this image that are very interesting to me. And there, there is honestly a lot to sit with. The photographer who took this was, he's a French photographer, Jean-Paul Gaudet. He actually stylized, at the discretion of the editor for Paper Magazine, this after a photo that is very famous of his called the Champagne Incident. I think the thing that really bothers me is that in the original Champagne Incident photo, the woman in this pose is black. As many people are aware, the Kardashian family has made something of a business of making their ethnicity as ambiguous as possible. And I would argue that they've done that in order to be able to appropriate as many different color cultures of black and brown people as they can. I 100% agree. Ugh. Please continue. And I would say that what I don't particularly care for is the fact that there are so many discussions now related to breaking the internet where you see an image and unless you've made a particular study of history, of art, of art history, you are so unaware of context that I believe is very, very important particularly when we're talking about appropriation. This is one of those moments where it's just a blatant mimicry of an actual person in a way that feels almost anthropological and comedic when it really shouldn't be. I really appreciate you saying that. And I wonder, I, I don't want to steal any of your your points to drive home, but the one thing that captures my eye, and, and you had mentioned this, her ridiculous pearls. These pearls immediately remind me of the Indebele neck ring, which are, you know, a form of neck jewelry. I, actually, I'm so sorry, I misspoke. It's common with the Indebele folks, but also with the Cayenne women. It's elongating the neck, the very sacred practice. And to have that imagery, I mean, there's no coincidence. I don't feel that there's a coincidence there. I think it's very purposeful that this woman who has co-opted black and brown culture is now further co-opting a very historical moment. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I don't want to say, actually, I do want to say, fuck it. Where's my drink? Blame the colonizers. I mean, this French fool is like, let me go ahead and mimic all of this very interesting, very sacred African art and practices of worshiping and caring for our bodies and turn it into a hyper-commercialized photo that's going to quote-unquote break the internet. Thank like, you. And yeah, Ugh. One more time for the people in the back, fuck the colonizers. And just the fact that, I mean, I don't know, how do you feel about the original photograph? Because I, I know, exactly. I find it 
I find it uncomfortable that she is completely naked. That And why does Kim Kardashian get to be clothed? Yeah, exactly. That privilege, that choice that she gets to have. In this original photograph, I mean, the phallic ejaculation imagery is just absolutely, of course, it's there. And the fact that all of the um, ejaculation is going towards a container being propped up by this woman's ass as if she were a table, an ottoman, reduced to an object. Which, I mean, says to say that so is Kim Kardashian. There is just this absurd objectification that we see happening right here. It's very, very upset. Upsetting. I am upset. And the other thing that I need everybody to realize, so I, I highly, highly encourage all of you to take a look at the two pictures side by side because it is breathtaking in its horribleness and ignorance. I have to take a moment to call out mimicry here and minstrelry because yeah. that's very much what is going on here. I just, it's always such a hard thing to talk about and I think that that's at least partly because it became such a horrifyingly popular um, form of entertainment in the U.S. specifically and because of our slave trade specifically, considering people as property and mm -hmm. therefore also for your amusement. And I, I also struggle with acknowledging Kim K's approaches to fame. Let us put it that way. I do as well. There are, God, it, I mean, it really lends itself to this idea of inherently good and inherently bad. I think that there is just such nuance to it where I can see there are quiet ways that she is funding some really important things that are happening right now. And then there are ways where she is just driving in. I mean, like, I look at this image and I have insane body dysmorphia. And I am not somebody that criticizes my body often because I refuse to let the patriarchy dismantle me in that way. It's, oh, I have feelings in any case. Please continue. And I think that it kind of brings us back around to a discussion about how to look at nude bodies in art. So I started with a very flip comparison to Love Actually, but I think that it's something that should be discussed more often. The fact that bodies contain multitudes and sometimes they are funny and sometimes they are gorgeous sometimes they're distorted and sometimes they are taken advantage of and hyper idealized but when you have open conversations about them that's when things can become truly beautiful I agree so wholeheartedly. It's in that open communication that you're able to spark these conversations, these 
tough conversations. They are not easy to have. I am uncomfortable looking at these images, but we can't sit in comfort. That's where, that's where in the discomfort is where change happens. It's very true. And when it gets too uncomfortable, you can softly lay your cheek against David's pillowy ass. That you can. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this fabulous journey of butts through the ages. Ugh. And now it is time for Dugout Government! Just a quick content warning that there are some gagging and vomiting sounds coming up, so if that is not your thing, that is all good. Feel free to end it right here, and we love you all, and we'll see you next week. Let me take a good look at you. Oh, there's so much I want to focus on. Um, so many sips have been had. It's the only way I could get through the Kim Kardashian conversation. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Um... Like, I just have to say, and, like, it's totally, totally honest. Um, you're, like, a literal work of art. And, like, I am obsessed with your tattoos. Like, did it hurt? And, like, not when you fell from heaven, but, like, when someone stuck, like, I just can't imagine, you know, like, how long does that even take? Like, oh my God, can I touch it? Like, what does it feel like? I don't understand. You look so great. Oh my God, girl, girl. I want you to touch my cheeks right now to just feel how hot they are because I am, I am blushing. I am blushing. Oh my God. Um, Oh, to answer your question, yeah, it like kind of hurt, um, but to be honest, it just like kind of felt like a bad sunburn, you know. But like, yeah, touch it, just like like right there, just touch it. Oh my God! Speaking of sunburns, when it gets really hot, they raise up, as, and it feels like, girl, it feels lovely. It's weird. That's so weird. You know. Oh my god, but wait. Shut up. Just like shut your face right now because what is that lipstick you have on? I am just getting these vibes and oh yeah. I just I'm sorry, I was just throw up really quick. What is that? That shade of red is like just so perfect for your hair and like just the rest of your face. This episode of Drunk Art History Bitches is brought to you by Emirate and Chantel. The music was made mostly by the 24-year-old with gray hair and Emirate. Thanks for listening.